I heard some good advice recently. Before you buy something, consider its true cost. Uh, This came from a book uh, by a guy named John Mark Comer. It's called The Ruthless Elimination of Hurry. So in his context, he's saying, hey, like if you're going to buy that motorcycle and take on the extra $250 payment per month that you probably couldn't afford, realize that when you work those extra hours, then your life is going to get sped up and there's going to be some other things that you end up saying no to as a result of it. So the price is not just the sticker price, but the extra work and the extra rush. Not only on top of that, you've got to make sure that the bike stays clean, you've got to maintain it, you've got to fix it when it breaks, and of course, you need to take time to ride it. And it all takes time as well. And what do you say no to with those yeses? You pay for the experience both in money and in time. There's always more than just the sticker price. I think the same advice applies as we consider our giving for the year ahead. What is the cost of giving? What is the true cost of giving the amount that you have been giving or the amount that you plan to give in the year ahead? Now, maybe this feels like a silly question. Well, pastor, like whatever amount I write on the check, that's the amount that I'm giving. Like 100 bucks, 200 bucks, 500, 1,000, 2,000 a month, whatever it is. But what's the true cost? Sometimes it's easier to see it in someone else than in ourselves. So we're going to take a look again at the account from Luke uh, 21, where Jesus is calling out the the gift of a widow and the gift of a rich man, uh, a rich person that's uh, doing that. And I'm going to read it again in just a moment. Uh, And my question that I want you to have in the back of your head as I read it is, what's the true Cost. So if you want to get yourself there to Luke chapter 21, starting at verse 1, pull out uh, the Bible that you brought along with you, or digital version, or you've got one in the pew in front of you or nearby, I encourage you to get that out, Luke chapter 21. As you do that, uh, I'll let you know the, the context. This is now the right at the beginning, beginning of chapter 21. Chapter 20 has been all about Jesus and the Pharisees and scribes, which essentially they lumped together because the scribes were Pharisaical. Um, So the Pharisees and scribes uh, have been back and forth, and they've been trying to corner him, and he's ended up cornering them. There's been more than a few mic drop moments as Jesus kind of lays it on them. You know, give unto Caesar what is Caesar, and to God what is God's, and they're puzzled, and they talk about all these other places where they're like showy and ostentatious and self-focused in what they're doing, and he's just been laying into them that like, hey guys, you guys aren't actually teaching what you say that you're teaching. It's not consistent with what has always been. And these four verses, at the beginning of 21 really are like the culmination of chapter 20, kind of the exclamation point at the end when Jesus initiates the topic of giving. So he's had this interaction with the Pharisees. They're in the temple courts area, and they're standing near where people are walking by to drop off their tithes. There would have been sort of like a horn-shaped kind of thing that they dropped their, their gifts into, and there would have been someone nearby that they were saying what it was for and recording these things. So he would have known what it was and what the purpose was. Like, hey, this is my tithe, or this is a thank offering, or this is a sacrificial offering for some other thing. So they would have been uh, privy to the information of what's going into the church coffers. So Luke 21, the question in our mind, what's the true cost? Starting at verse 1. As he looked up, Jesus saw the rich putting their gifts into the temple treasury. He also saw a poor widow put in two very small copper coins. And he says, I tell you the truth, this poor widow 
has put in more than all the others. All these people gave their gifts out of their wealth, but she, out of her poverty, put in all she had to live on. So what's the true cost for the rich? Given the context, the rich here kind of culminating from all this talk of criticizing the scribes and the Pharisees, uh, the rich that they're talking about are the scribes and the Pharisees, uh, those that are in that same group. And so he's still talking to them here. And so uh, how did they give? These people gave out of their wealth, meaning they still had a lot in their pockets. The cost to them was largely minimal. It's a picture of someone who has overabundance, and they're just giving some of the overabundance into the temple treasury. This essentially doesn't limit them at all, and there's really no additional sticker price. There's no cost. But for the widow, the true cost, she gave one out of her poverty, and two, she gave all she had to live on. Literally, there's nothing left. Like, I dig back into the original languages on this. There's no extra nuance or something. It says she gave everything. Now, what's the true cost to her then? Well, what does money provide? What is, the cost is everything that money has to offer. As I sit down with couples that are intending to be married, we have a, an exercise we work through. We talk about uh, what is it that money offers to us or what are the ways that we think of it? And largely, uh, money offers these four things. It offers status or the capacity to get status or show status. It offers security. It offers a way toward enjoyment. And it offers a measure of control. When I have money, I can do these things. When I don't, I can't. So if she gave all that she had, it cost her not only the two coins, but the means to have the status symbols that money offers, the things that indicate that that I'm on the in-group or I fit in with these people because I have the right label on my clothes, drive the right car, have a house in the right neighborhood, have my kitchen updated in the ways that uh, people say we should these days that lead me in my own eyes or in the eyes of others to say I'm successful. She doesn't have these. She also, it cost her the feeling of security that money offers. It also cost her the means by which she would be able to make sure that she could do enjoyable things in her life. It also cost her a measure of control that she could exert if hard times came along. It didn't just cost her money. It cost her significant inconvenience, potentially discomfort, even potentially pain is part of what she's paying. I mean, if all the money's in the church treasury, and I don't have money for the meal tonight, then there might be the pain of hunger. I mean, I, I don't know, maybe somebody else is gonna provide and it'll come along, but maybe there won't be. If it's, she's really given everything she has, I don't know this to be true or not, but does she have a roof over her head anymore? Does she have a bed to sleep in or will she feel the pain of a cold night? This is why Jesus says, this poor widow has put in more than all the others. Which to me says, I mean, this is a principle here, the true cost in Jesus' mind isn't measured by how much is given, but Jesus measures the size of the gift by how much is left still in the hands of the giver. So back to you. What's the cost of giving? What is the cost of giving the amount that you've been giving over the course of this past year? Or what will be the cost or the true cost of what you give in the year ahead? Is it... Is it just a portion of the overabundance that you have, some of what's to spare, that has little additional cost to you, or does it cost you something more? Some status, some security, some enjoyment, 
some control? Is it more like the widow's giving or more like that of the rich Pharisees? And maybe you're asking me, why should I care? (laughs) Well, the widow's example is what Jesus is encouraging them toward. This, This whole exclamation point at the end of this critique of the scribes and Pharisees, he's making this comparison and praising the widow as a positive example and labeling the Pharisees as what not to do. And the original hearers of this, remember, uh, the gospel of of Luke is one big picture. We read it in chunks at a time uh, and try to understand it, but this is like one big long sermon that has overarching principles and threads that run through it. And so as they're speaking of these things, as Luke is telling this story, it's reminiscent of a previous story that he told in the life of Jesus back in Luke chapter 12, where the original hearers would have been like, ooh, this widow sounds like that one. And the teaching of Jesus in Luke 12 uh, 22 through 34. Feel free to write that down, but I'm just going to summarize it for now. This is where Jesus teaches about, don't worry about what you will eat or drink. He encourages, look at the flowers of the field and the birds of the air. And the flowers are beautifully taken care of, and the birds, uh, they, they neither sow nor reap, but God takes care of them. So seek first the kingdom of God and all his righteousness, and all these things will be added to you as well. And I'm going to read this these last couple of verses of that teaching. Jesus says, Do not be afraid, little flock, for your Father has been pleased to give you the kingdom. Sell your possessions and give to the poor. Provide purses for yourselves that will not wear out, a treasure in heaven that will not be exhausted, where no thief comes near and no moth destroys. For where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. The widow would have been seen as the one who does this, who's complying with what Jesus has encouraged, as someone who is rich toward God, as someone who is not anxious about this life, one who sought first the kingdom of God, one who's willing to sell everything, leave everything out of her love for God. So not only is that praised, but the Pharisees are are criticized, condemned, not primarily for what they're doing, but for the heart posture behind it, that of greed and self-centeredness and self-servingness. They've, he's critiqued them in a variety of ways, the, the way that they pray and the way that they dress. Uh, he even critiqued the way that they give, and I think these two things are connected as well, and he wants us to make this connection. Uh, in Luke 20, verse 47, you can uh, look back to it if you're in, in your uh, own version of the Bible in front of you there. Jesus condemns the Pharisaic scribes who eat up the houses of widows. Now, what does that mean? to eat up the houses of widows. How's that possible if you're the the scribes and the Pharisees, the leaders in the temple? Well, the, the commentators that I read said that likely it's because they taught the widows to give more than what they reasonably should have been giving more than what the Bible mandates, more than what had been the habit of, of the, the centuries and what God has called them to, so much so that they were giving away so much that they didn't have enough to be able to care for themselves anymore. And why? Well, if it follows from the rest of uh, what came before, out of a self-centered greed to line their own pockets. So put it all together. Jesus, on the one hand, is condemning the scribes for their greed, shown in coercion of widows, giving more than they should have been told to give, and also their giving of but a minor part of the overabundance that they had, and at the same time is commending the widow's unselfish commitment to the work that God is doing through the temple, that she is completely devoted 
to the work of the Lord, that she's doing what, in, when Jesus uh, met another young rich man in the past, what they, she did what he couldn't do. See, the, this account of Jesus and this other rich man, uh, this rich man comes to Jesus and he says, hey, uh, what must I do to inherit the kingdom of God? And Jesus said, well, follow the laws. What do you know? And he's like, well, I'm gonna list off a few. And Jesus is like, yeah, do those. And he's like, good, I have been. He's like, great, all right. And he's like, well, what else should I do? And Jesus says to him, well, sell everything you have, give it to the poor and come follow me. And the man went away sad because he was very rich. He walked away sad because of that. She gave away everything she had and was praised by Jesus, even though she was complying with what was excessive, unbiblical, unrighteous expectations for how much sacrifice you should give. And before you write off this widow as an odd outlier, Realize that this giving everything, not unique to her. Consider Mary, the mother of Jesus. When she's first told she's pregnant, learn that it's by the power of the Holy Spirit that she's got a baby growing inside her. What does she say and do? Luke 1, 38. I am the Lord's servant. May it be to me as you have said. She too gave everything she had. She too said, you can have all of my life. You can have all of my body and my next few years and the intentions of my life and, and I'll set aside my dreams and follow instead the dreams that you have for me. This is really a giving everything she had. And then of course her son Jesus, man, he gave everything on a whole nother level. Everything he had, an extravagant giving. And I refer you back to the, the sermon from last week. Pastor Brian did a great job talking about how the extravagant gift of God has come through Jesus. Nonetheless, the call to follow Jesus has never been practical. The true cost is always far greater than the sticker price. His invitation to take up your cross and follow me. That's how he invited people in. He said, come follow me. Take up your cross. This is the first time he talks about the cross. is not his own cross, but the cross of being a follower of him, a, a burden that it would bear. So bearing some crosses should be what, she should what we should expect. So what does this mean for our giving? About what you'll write on a sheet of paper next week, what you'll commit to give in the year ahead. The year ahead. You should give everything you have no, <laughs> we are not here to devour up widows' houses or yours. That isn't what it says. Or how about this one? You should give until it hurts. Anybody heard that one before? Give until it hurts? Yeah, okay. Yeah, I had a buddy in college. Uh, his joke was about like, you know, if my wallet's in the back pocket, and he's like, hey, give until it hurts. Like, oh, that's it. it hurts about there. So that's as far as I can get. I can't even reach into my wallet and get it out because I can't get back there. That's not the goal either. The, the goal is not that it hurts. Jesus didn't say when he came into the world, I'm coming in so that I might hurt. No, he came so that I might save the world, so that I might seek and save the lost, so that I might give of myself for the sake of others. And was there pain that came as a result of that? Yes, that wasn't the goal. But if it does hurt, don't be too quick to shy away from it, to get away from it. For pain actually is a good thing. Soldiers would say, uh, pain is proof that you still know you're alive. <laughs> 
uh, a cardiac doctor would say pain's a good thing. When you've got this thing going on in your chest and it's radiating down your left arm, it's telling you something. Pay attention. Go to the doctor and get some help. There's something happening under the surface that you should pay attention to. So does giving away some of the money that's in your possession lead you to grieve what you now won't have or can't have? Or does that stop you from giving what you otherwise would give because you're fearful of what you now won't have? What does that say, that pain that you feel, what does that say about what's going on under the surface that you might need to pay attention to? Have you ever looked at the end of the year at your giving statement and thought, man, if that money was still in my bank account, if that amount, is like it's all been added up over the course of the year, if that amount was still there, well, then I could fill in the blank. Then I could have that vacation. Boy, that'd be great enjoyment. Then I could save for college or retirement. Boy, that would bring security. Then I could buy a blank. That would bring a bit more status. Then I could feel more peace in the midst of what is certainly uncertain times financially that would give me a more measure of control. Friends, that experience, if you look at that, in fact, I encourage you to do that. Consider what else that would go to. And that pain is good. And consider where it's coming from, where, where your heart is inclined, where you're looking besides God to look for your status, your security, your enjoyment, or your control. Note it and turn from it. Thank God for helping you see it. Though, I should also say, if it doesn't hurt at all, it probably begs some questions as well. Particularly, like, have I stepped in? Am I like the scribes and the Pharisees who thought they had it all together and everything figured out and were doing the way the church has always done it but didn't see it? Has greed crept in, at least partially, into my heart? What is the source of my status my security, my enjoyment, and my sense of control. For the widow, who is held up as the example, it's God alone. To what extent is that true of me? For if money is the source, then the true cost of giving or lack thereof, the true cost of what actually is probably some greed and potentially some lack of trust is actually far greater than the, the ticket price or the lack of ticket price. First uh, Timothy 6, some of it was read before, but let me read for you again. It talks about how serious this is, the additional price that one might pay. This is Paul writing to a younger pastor, Timothy. Timothy's been left to care for a church. Uh, Timothy is away from him now, and he's advising him on how to encourage people on various topics, and this is when he's taking up money and encouraging people in that. This is what Paul, the experienced pastor, has to say. People who want to get rich fall into temptation and trap, a trap, and into many foolish and harmful desires that plunge men into ruin and destruction. For the love of money is a root of all kinds of evil. Some people, eager for money, have wandered away from the faith and pierced themselves with many griefs. Let me read that last part again. Some people, eager for money, have wandered away from the faith. Friends, he's saying your faith is potentially on the line here. You're potentially putting it into jeopardy by landing in the greed category, by, by only giving a portion of your overabundance, by letting your heart be somewhere else instead of 
wholly trusting on God for all that you need. I think this is why Jesus was unrelenting and and just determined with those Pharisees to help them see what they didn't see. Because their faith was on the line and the salvation of those that they were teaching was on the line. Paul goes on to direct Timothy. Command those who are rich in the present world not to be arrogant, nor to put their hope in wealth, which is so uncertain, to put their hope in God, who richly provides us with everything for our enjoyment. That leads me to ask, how do I know if my hope is in my wealth or in God? In something uncertain or something that's solid? Well, let me submit to you this. You would know by the acts of either thinking about or actually giving away your wealth and then noticing what that's like for you. So as I think about giving this amount or as I actually do give away these things, what's that like? Does it stir up fear that I'm not gonna be okay if I don't have that to help me get whatever it is that I think that it comes from it? If it does stir stir up fear to you, let me turn you back to the good news. Return to the cross and to Jesus, who for the joy set before him endured the cross so that he could give you life now and life eternal with him. If your father would do that for you, who takes care of the birds of the air and the flowers of the field, you can know that you can trust him even if you hold on to less than would make you most comfortable. Hold on to that good news. And maybe, maybe if you want, if you want to grow some more in that trust, you could let go of a bit more of your wealth. You could let God prove himself to you that he will provide, and he will. Ultimately, you still need a number for next week, or better, I'd encourage you a percentage of the amount that you expect to be in your hands over the course of the next year, and I haven't given you one yet, and I'm not going to, but I will offer you this. C.S. Lewis, as he deals with this topic, he says, I do not believe one can settle on how much we ought to give. I'm afraid the only safe rule is to give more than we can spare. I think in guidelines from the scriptures that we've read today, well, the goal is not that it hurts. It probably will, because there's many things that have captured our hearts and and would would draw us to find our our hope, our security, our our status, our control in those things and the things that, that money can buy. And as I strive to give in a way that puts my trust totally in God, it'll help me grow to trust in him more fully. And while the standard of giving isn't everything, Jesus certainly does affirm in in, uh, highlighting the giving of this widow both the heart posture and the action of the widow. And while the action, this overgiving that she was doing, is not what we're called to, the heart posture definitely is. We are called to have hearts postured as the widow, as Mary did, as Jesus did, as we come and follow him, and to consider everything is yours, God. We're called to consider what's still in our hands the same way as the stuff that we have given away, to use as God pleases. Uh, Let me flesh it out for you. How many of you continue to think about the money that you've put into the offering plate or you've uh, sent on your... um, 
your giving app or through your bank or whatever it is, when you've given that money away in your offering, how many of you continue to think of that as something available to you to help you get status, security, enjoyment, or control? We don't because we've given it away. Somebody else gets to use it. It's not in our hands anymore. We've put it in the hands of the church to use well. We are called to consider all of our finances this way. Not in my hands anymore. His to use as he pleases. Or or thought of differently, consider as if you've given everything away like the widow, but God has entrusted back to you a portion of it to still use the way he determines. I'll warn you, though, this will cost you. Like the widow, you won't have any of it as a backup plan to provide and to step in when God doesn't in the way and in the time and with the amount that you want. But what you will gain, the true benefit that comes with that true cost is, as Paul wrote in his letter to Timothy, hope in God who richly provides us with everything for for our enjoyment. And this is a firm foundation for the coming age that will position you by the power of the Holy Spirit to take hold of the life that is truly life, both now and forever. And as I consider this, the, the question I end up coming back to is, is there any cost that's too high for helping me avoid wandering away from the faith that leads to that kind of life. I'm gonna pray that God would ask, would, would lead me in this, and I'm gonna trust that he will provide. I encourage you the same. Ask God to lead you. And friends, he will provide. Amen.